Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I uh, started off by picking like 13, 14, 15 verses, then I whittled it down to 10. I was like, that might be even a little bit bold, and so I whittled it down to 6. And then after I was finally done studying, got the whole sermon together, I came to the resolution that three was a very ambitious chunk for us to take on this morning. So we're going to be reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, but we're really going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. So uh, like Pastor Preston was saying, uh, we've been recognizing Advent, the season of Advent, the Sundays leading up to Christmas, and different aspects of the Christian faith that, uh, that give us hope, that give us faith, that give us joy and peace, and ultimately the light uh, of Christ, that center candle there. In fact, I might go a little bit closer to the candles this morning, just to kind of warm up. Might light a few more of those. And so uh, this morning, since we've already talked about hope last week, and today uh, we're uh, recognizing faith, I thought it would be good to pick a passage that really kind of combined the two of those, faith and hope, together. And uh, so that's why we, we're looking at this passage. But again, we're going to be honing in specifically on faith, because faith is important. It's important that we talk about faith because Scripture says things like in Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith it is... There, some of you already know it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then Ephesians 2, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. So faith is an integral part of the Christian faith, right? It's kind of built into it. So do you think it's important that we know what faith is? Absolutely. So uh, faith has to be present. It's important that we know what it is. And so to do that, we're going to be looking at First off, the dictionary, we're going to be looking at Merriam-Webster's dictionary, Google dictionary, and, uh, and then we're going to be looking at the scriptural definition and contrasting those two today. So if you want to open up your phones to Google, and uh, you can look up these definitions yourself if you would like to, but I was, uh, I was looking through these definitions, I was like, this is pretty good, I like these definitions of faith in the dictionary. It started off by saying, complete trust or confidence in someone or something, a strong belief or trust in someone or something, belief in the existence of God, complete trust, something that is believed especially with strong conviction. I'm like, yeah, you go, Webster. You got this. This is, this is pretty good. But I kept reading. You know, you kind of get that, that first you know, sentence where it'll tell you the definition, but then it'll start giving you a little bit more. It'll give you the secondary definitions or the definition or the words used in a sentence. And I started looking at that and I was like, whoa, hold on, this sounds kind of conflicting. It sounds like there's, there's a lot more weirdness going on at, than I first looked at because it's talked about complete trust, strong belief, you know, in something, strong conviction. And then in one of the very first sentences, it says this, it used it in a sentence, it says, this restores one faith in politicians. I was like, why did you have to connect politics and faith together? If you want to ruin a word, that's a really quick way to do it. But it started going even more south after that. Uh, it said, a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. That's in our dictionary. 
Strong belief based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. Strong belief or trust in someone or something. Then the caveat, blind, unquestioning faith. Belief in the existence of God. It's a strong religious feeling. Do you see? It started off really good and then just in one breath later, it's starting to undermine everything that faith is supposed to be. A firm belief in something for which there is no proof? Is that the faith that you have in God? Is that the candle we just lit that provides us hope? It keeps going. Complete trust, but then it says, without question. We took everything on faith. That disturbs me. We are so in trouble if this is what faith is. By this definition of faith, we can have faith in anything. <coughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> By this definition of faith, faith in God and faith in we faith in God and faith in commercials is the same exact thing. My girls watch Saturday morning car, uh, commercials. Or I'm sorry, they watch those two Saturday morning cartoons, and they can like quote you all the commercials that tell them to buy something because that will make them happy and make them pleased with life and, uh, you know, grant them their every wish. You know, and, and it's, it's like, you don't need proof. You can trust a commercial. By this definition of faith, faith in God and faith in government are the same thing. Maybe we should send all of our money to the government in hopes that they will indeed make everyone's lives better. I'm not saying don't pay your taxes, just to be clear. But I'm saying maybe they are right. Maybe the reason they haven't succeeded is because they don't have enough of your money. They just need a little bit more. You know, that's, that's what this definition of faith would lead us to believe. The world is telling us that faith is blind. It is foundationless and lacks evidence. And thus, it is as random and as unpredictable as a feeling. If that is all that faith is, I think Karl Marx was correct when he said that religion, faith, is the opium of the people. It's a drug to help us feel better, to make the pain seemingly go away. There's obviously a lot of confusion surrounding the term faith. When I first read Webster's and Google's uh, you know, definition of them, I was disappointed and I got a little upset and I was like, I'm kind of angry. I'm like, man, Satan is trying to undermine the faith of our young Christians and their believers and even mature believers when we hear stuff like this and buy into it. But then I realized maybe this is a gift that God is using to open up the eyes of his church. This is a cheap definition of faith. And a cheap definition of faith leads to a cheap definition of hope. And that's all that this world has. Listen, people, if your faith is uncertain, your hope is uncertain. Flimsy faith leads to flimsy hope. Faith is the foundation of hope. Your hope is only as sure as what you have faith in. If your faith lacks substance, your hope will lack substance. That's what we call empty hope. The world has a, a great example of, of I think, this, this empty faith and this empty hope. It's called the power of positive thinking. Does anybody use the power of positive thinking? 
Just to be clear, this is different than what my, my father-in-law preached on last week about not being grumpy pants and being thankful. Very different. Power of positive thinking. You know, that if you, if you are positive enough, you know, you'll, you'll realize those dreams that'll make everybody happy around you and you'll be happier in life and it's all good. Well, I ran a joke about this whole positive, um, you know, this positive thinking thing. And so forgive me if I tell you a joke this morning. But I was talking to my friend, my friend John. I was talking to John. And uh, not to be confused with the cat John or my, my buddy John the deaconess. Neither one of those is this John. So I was talking to my buddy John, and he was telling me, yeah, my, my dad passed away. I was like, oh, that's horrible. He's like, yeah, I was sad, but you know, uh, it was just really inspirational, you know, how he died. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, my dad was laying in his hospital bed. I went up to him, and he looked me in the eyes, and he looked me in the eyes. He said, be positive. I was like, oh, dad. I mean, right up to his, his you know, the time they passed away, he was being positive. I looked at him, and he grabbed my arm and said, be positive. And I was just like, oh, what, how inspirational that is. What a great, you know, that's just so great. Your father is such a positive attitude, has a, such a positive attitude on life. And I was like, yeah, that is so inspirational. And he was like, but it's just a shame. If the doctors would have only known what blood type he was, they could have saved him. <laughs> the point is, you can be as positive as you want, but you still die. Being positive isn't enough. You have to be positive in the truth. There has to be something to back it up. And that's why we need to contrast the world's definition of faith with God's definition of faith. Because God has given us a truth to cling to. Instead of letting the world define our faith, we need to go to Scripture and learn what faith is, uh, what faith in God truly is. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me and pray as we read God's Word today. Teach us faith, God. Teach us what it is. Help us to have faith. Help us, to, uh, help us to grow in that faith, to live in faith, so that you will be pleased with us and so that we can experience your blessings, Lord, and we can bring your blessing of hope to others. Amen. I hope you've made it all the way over to Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6, and you can read it along with me. Hebrews 11, 1 through 6 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Amen? Amen. Y'all, we could take years going through just these couple of sentences. The writer of Hebrews says the same in verse 32 of this passage. He says, what more should I say for time would fail me? 
And all of you guys are probably looking at your clock and saying, yeah, Pastor John, your clock's going to fail you in about 20 minutes here, 30 minutes, so keep things going. So the first point I want to make this morning is that the only seemingly blind part of this passage is hope. The only seemingly blind part about this passage is hope. It is the unrealized hope, a hope that is not yet. Hebrews 11.1 1 is, is, is kind of like a mirror. It has two, uh, two portions that are essentially saying the same thing. It says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. See, substance, faith is substance. In the next part, it says, faith is evidence. The hope for and the things not seen are, are kind of together. It's describing the same thing. Hope is to expect something with desire. I don't have hope in something that I already have. It's important that all the single ladies around the world know that I am not hoping for a good wife. I already have one. Hope by its very nature is something you desire to be true in the future, but is not yet fully realized. I hope you feel better, not fully realized yet. I, at least hopes she gets a puppy for Christmas. Eunice hopes I build her raised beds, garden beds, for next spring. If I don't build them, I may be hoping for a new wife. But I think this is where the confusion comes in. Even though hope is not yet seen, in, uh, even though hope is not seen or realized yet, it doesn't mean that our faith is blind and not seen or realized yet. There's a difference. Faith comes from the Greek word, and uh, I don't know Greek very well, and so forgive me if I mispronounce these. Preston actually took the Greek class at Moody, so help me out here. Faith comes from the Greek word pistis. That's a fun one. Everybody say pistis. I should have asked you if that's how you said it before I told them all to say it. Was that right? Okay, good. Pistis. This is what it means. Tell me, does this sound blind? Does this sound like there's no evidence. It says, faith literally means to win over or persuade. It is a firm persuasion, a conviction, a belief in the truth or the veracity or the reality of something. Does that sound blind? Does that sound that there's no proof? Does it sound like it's unquestioned that is just based on a feeling? You can say no. Romans 8, 38 through 39, Paul says, For I am convinced. I'm convinced. My girls, I say, go clean the house. I come back and say, we clean the house. I look around and say, I'm unconvinced. I look around and see the evidence. I'm not convinced. Paul looked around, however, and he said, I am convinced. He was more convinced in the power of God's love through Christ Jesus than he was in the power of death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or anything in creation. Paul was convinced. There's two words in this passage that are used to describe the term faith. Substance and evidence. Your version of scripture might have a couple of different variations, but it's all saying the same thing. I memorized the passage with substance and evidence, and so that's what I'm using today. Faith is the substance, tangible, 
tangible reality. Your version of Scripture might say faith is the assurance. The term substance comes from the word hypostasis, which means to place or to set under. That which underlies the apparent, hence the reality, the essence, the substance, that which is the basis of something else. The assurance, the guarantee, confidence. Does that sound blind? No. Uh, you might have heard a lot of people when they talk about uh, faith, they'll point to a chair. I've got a stool over there, I'll point to the stool. I've used this illustration, so I need to go easy because it is kind of a good illustration, make some points. But I don't really like this whole illustration of faith as saying, faith is when you see a chair and you sit in the chair. I think Connie Carey has seen me sit in a chair once in my office. And what happened to that chair, Connie? Yeah, chair broke. Do I have a lot of confidence in chairs after that? The funny thing is that's not the first office chair that has done that to me. That was the second one. So forgive me if I don't have faith in this chair. And honestly, I'm glad that God doesn't expect me to have faith in this chair. He's saying there's something more important underlying this chair, this stool, that is more important. What is more certain that is underlying this stool? Stage. I have more certainty and faith in this stage than I do in this chair. It's the underlying reality that keeps this the stool up, right? Although I don't really have a lot of confidence and faith in the stage either because I've seen plenty of stages on YouTube when they get enough people on them and they collapse, you know? So I've got a little more faith, if you will, in this underlying reality of the stage, but I have even more faith in the underlying reality in the foundation of this church. But I've seen enough earthquakes to know that I shouldn't have really more faith in, in the chair than I do in the platform than I do in the foundation. We can just go on and on and on. What is the underlying reality that God wants us to have the ultimate faith in? That is the question. And the question is, is where I am in my notes. Listen to this. This is the underlying reality that upholds everything. Hebrews 1, going all the way back to the very first verses of Hebrews, it says, through whom, it's talking about Jesus, through whom God created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And guess who upholds the universe by his word of his power? Jesus. That is the underlying reality that everything else rests upon. Faith in a chair, I scoff. Faith in the, under, the underlying reality that the universe was created by God. The universe is, is the visible aspect that we can see. It's apparent, but there's an, is, there's an invisible reality that upholds it all. That is the anchor of our faith. That is the truth which underlies the apparent. The second word that is used in this passage to describe faith is evidence or conviction. Elihas is the term that is used, and it means to convict. It is a certain persuasion, to be persuaded, to be convinced. Like in a courtroom, when you're hearing a case, 
and you hear evidence that is presented, and then there is enough evidence, there is enough proof to come to a certain conclusion. That's what your faith is. Listen to this courtroom evidence that John speaks of in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We saw it, we heard it, we touched it, we have seen it, we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. Does that sound blind? No. Hebrews 11, I got this, uh, I was talking from a Greek dictionary, it's talking about faith. Faith is a persuasion, uh, that persuasion is not the outcome of imagination. Our faith is not the outcome of someone's grand imagination and dreams, but is based in fact and reality. And because it is based in fact, it becomes the basis for real hope. To have real hope, you have to have real faith. You have to be certain and know, be persuaded, to be convinced. Hope is empty, groundless positivity unless there is faith, certain faith, realistic faith, faith that in something that truly happened to back it up. Being happy in the midst of hardship, which we are called to do as Christians, facing persecution and even death, that is insane unless there is something greater to back it up, something better for us, waiting for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 says this very truth. Paul says, for if the dead did not rise, if that is not real, if that doesn't really happen, then Christ is not risen. Christ had to physically rise. It had to be a truth. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, worthless, meaningless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, they're perished. They're dead, hopeless. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, if our hope is only significant and worthwhile for this earthly life, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul's recognizing this truth. Faith has to have substance. It has to have evidence. It has to be true. And we must be convinced. Our hope has to be based on reality, backed up by substance, evidence, is assurance, and proof. So the question is, what are the sources of our confidence? What is the evidence and the proof, the substance that ensures our faith? And I'm going to mention three things this morning. The first is God's creation. We see this in verse 3. It says, by faith, by faith. Remember, that is by being persuaded. When we look at something and we see the evidence, we are persuaded by the truth. We understand, we know 
that the universe was created by the word of God. We don't just look as Christians into the universe and imagine that God might have or could have created it. We can look at creation and be certain and convinced. We can be certain and convinced that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Again, what is the underlying reality that upholds everything? Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. This is not just Christians. This is to all mankind. It says, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made. So they are without excuse. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Does that sound like God wants you to have a blind faith? No. Creation is proof and evidence of our God. And we don't need to be ashamed about standing on this truth. Let God be true, though every man a liar. John Piper, we're watching the Desiring God series on Wednesday nights. We just finished up our last one. And, but he made this, uh, he just made this illustration. I thought it was great. He was talking about creation. He said, creation is like a finger pointing to God. And we're like a bunch of little children who have never seen a finger pointing ever before and don't know what it means. And so we walk up to the finger and be like, I wonder how long it's been there for. Ooh, what's it made of? Did you know if you do this, it can bend? We're staring at the finger and trying to, you know, psychoanalyze the finger and figure out everything about the substance and evidence, you know, substance of it, and we're not looking at what the finger is actually pointing to. It points to God. We can see this, and I don't want to get too much in the science side of things because there's Science is kind of crazy trying to figure out, you know, everything. But there's some things that I love reading about and hearing about and studying about. Irreducible complexity is one of those things. That they're the simplest, most basic, simple forms of life. We look at them and they're like, it couldn't have evolved. All the parts and pieces of the most basic bacterial flagellum, one of the most simple single-cell organisms, has multiple parts that all have to be present at the same time. It's like a fishing rod. If one piece is not present, or fishing reel, if one piece is not present, the whole thing falls apart and does not work. Irreducible complexity. The complexity of the eyeball. Darwin himself confessed that it was absurd to propose that the human eye evolved through spontaneous mutation and natural selection. Now, there are evolutionary scientists who are trying to explain how the eye evolved now, but I look at it and say, that didn't evolve. That's God creating it. We see design and creation. We, lived, we live on a privileged planet. The chances of life spontaneously happening on earth are slim to zero, and yet there's still a possibility. What is even less likely is that there is a planet that could even support this possibility for life. We know this because we look throughout all the galaxies, the billions and trillions of galaxies that we're seeing. We're happy if we find something that might have water. We don't think about how perfectly the earth is situated for, 
for us to be sustained in our life, it has to have the right axis, has to have the right atmosphere, has to have the right distance from the sun, has to have a moon, has to be in the right position in the galaxy so that all of the, you know, so the asteroids are hitting other things and not us and killing the life that did possibly happen. We live in a privilege, on a privileged planet. And we can go on and on and on. John Lennox is a great Irish mathematician, bioethicist, and an apologist, which means he's married and spends a lot of time apologizing. He asked, he, he asked a basic simple question. It was actually in a, um, I think it was a, a debate at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And uh, he's like this old grandfatherly figure sitting back in a chair. And he was like, why does, I can't do an Irish accent. Preston can help me with that. Uh, he's like, why does water boil? Why does water boil? What would a scientist say? A scientist would look at why water boils and say, well, it's because there's this reservoir of liquid propane, which is a combustible liquid that is under pressure. And because it's under pressure, it forces it through this pipe. And that pipe goes through your house and it goes up into the stove. And there's this nozzle that sprays this liquid propane and it's ignited with a spark. And so this potential energy within this liquid turns into flame. And this flame heats this metal and through natural conduction, and help me out scientists, I'm getting all this wrong. I think it's natural conduction. This heat is transferred through the metal pot into the water. The water molecules are heated up and they turn to like steam and they start rising up and you've got boiling water. That's what a scientist would say. I love science. Don't, don't get me wrong. I love science and I want to I encourage Christians to be scientists. But what John Lennox stepped back and he said, after the scientist said, that's why water boiled, he was like, no. He's like, it boiled because I wanted a spot of tea. It's a seeming simple response, but we have to recognize that science can tell us a lot of things, but it can't tell us why. It can't tell us why. So what are the sources of our confidence? What is the evidence, the proof, the substance that ensure our faith? God's world, creation, the second thing is God's faithfulness to his word. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, now know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Throughout the Old Testament, God always did what he said he would do. We look at Abraham. Abraham, we told that he was a man of faith because even though he didn't receive the promise in his lifetime, he still walked in faith. He still trusted God, and that was shown in his life. But we can look back on the promise Abraham didn't receive, and we know that Abraham received it. God is faithful to his promises. And we can see this throughout God's redemptive history displayed throughout Scripture and history. We see this throughout the Old Testament and continued through the New Testament and ultimately through the life of Jesus. We lit the candle of faith. 
It was not imaginary that Jesus came and was born as a baby on this earth. That is not something that was made up. In fact, that was something that was foretold in prophecy and scripture hundreds of years before. He was called, he would be, prophecy said, prophecy is writing history before history happens. It was prophesied he would be born of a virgin, called Emmanuel, born in Bethlehem. Great people would come and adore him. There would be the killing of children of Bethlehem. He would be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner. I mean, it just goes on and on and on about prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ. Our faith that Jesus was born in a baby is not a story. Jesus is not a plastic baby. He was real. He is real. Scripture continues show us that our faith has substance and evidence and truth behind it. The prophecies about how Jesus would live his life, how he would die, the intense suffering that he would go through. He would be struck on his cheek. His vision would be marred. He would um, be spit upon and scarred. His hands and his feet would be nailed to the cross. He would be forsaken by God, that he would cry out, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. He would be mocked. Gallon vinegar would be offered to him. His garments would be parted. Scripture goes on and on and on telling us what was going to happen to Jesus before it happened. And this is a crazy thing. I can't remember the name of the guy that I, I got this from. I apologize because I don't want to take credit for it. But he, he noticed this. He noted this. I think his name was like Stephen Lawson. He said, all of this recorded hundreds of years before Jesus ever entered the world. And many of these prophecies were filled not by his friends, but by his enemies. That's significant. Because I could see a bunch of college guys getting together with nothing better to do on a weekend, you know, and being like, hey, let's go see how many of these we can do. But these weren't fulfilled by just his friends. They were fulfilled by enemies, those who stand to lose the most with their fulfillment. Not only that, many of these prophecies were fulfilled before Jesus was born, while he was in his mother's womb, and while he was in the grave. Happenstance? Chance? I don't think so. Our faith can be certain. It is real. I think it's interesting how quickly we can dismiss the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in Scripture and yet think it's a big deal that the Simpsons predicted Donald Trump would be president one day, or that Lady Gaga would perform at one of the Super Bowl halftime shows. We can have faith because God is faithful. He does what he says he will do. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind, has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We can be certain because God is faithful to his word. Theologian Bob Utley said, Faith is a human response to God's faithfulness and his promise. We trust his trustworthiness, not our own. His character is the key. So our faith in God is not blind. We can have faith. We can have pistis. We have been persuaded. We have been convicted because there is substance and evidence in creation, because there is substance and evidence in God's word. And then finally, there is substance and evidence in the lives of his people. 
God has called us to be salt and light. God's people are to be a testimony of the truth and the reality of Scripture and what faith in God is. The rest of Hebrews 11 talks about this, that there is substance and evidence in the lives of his saints, of his people, of his children. It goes through story after story. When you look at Abraham, he left his home. That was substance and evidence to his faith. Sarah bore a son in old age. Moses, Rahab, she hid two spies. Joseph was a slave and continued to honor God in his life. Noah endured scorn while he preached the coming judgment. It's like story after story after story of real-life people who lived real-life faith and showed the substance and evidence of the hope that was not yet a reality. They lived out in such a way that people would look and ask and say, what, where does this hope come from? And they can point to something tangible and say, this is the source of my hope, a faithful God who loves me and is faithful to his word. Their faith meant something. It was not an empty belief. It was a belief that dictated how they lived their lives, and their lives reflected that hope, a sure and certain hope. That's why scripture says, be ready to give a reason. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you because there's a reason and an answer for the hope that is within you. That's why James tells us that faith without works is the dead. It's because faith has substance and it has evidence. If there is a weak lean in this chain of evidence, that points to God, I think it's the lives of those who call themselves Christian. If you and I stood before that court, just of society, would there be enough evidence to convict us of being Christian? I don't mean circumstantial evidence. I just happened to be at church that Sunday. I just happened to have a Bible, you know. It's at the library. There's a lot of books. Is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian and of having hope in God? The world's definition of faith is messed up, and I think a lot of that is our fault. And if we're going to challenge and help change the world's definition of faith, I think there has to be substance and evidence of that hope in each one of our lives. And so our faith in God is not blind. We can have faith and we have been persuaded, we have been convicted because there is substance and evidence in creation, there is substance and evidence in his word, and there's substance and evidence in the lives of his people. For application, if you lack faith, there's a couple of things that we can do, it, do about that. We can pray and ask for faith. I love the passage in Mark 23 through 24, and there was a man who came to Jesus, and he had his son who was demon-possessed, and, and even the disciples couldn't cast the demons out of his young son. And, and he brought him to Jesus and was like, heal, please heal my son. And Jesus said, if you believe anything is possible, and I, I like the man's response because he said, I believe, 
but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. That is a prayer that God will honor. God will honor that. Help my unbelief. Show me your face. Show me your glory, Lord. God wants you to see him and know that he is God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He will answer that prayer. But then, secondly, if you lack faith, you need to know that faith comes by hearing. And hearing what? The word of God. If your faith is wavering, I'm just going to take uh, a gander, just take a, a guess, and say that you might not be spending time in God's word. Because that's where faith is built up. Or even God's church, because you know what we're supposed to be talking about and together with each other? God's word. Stirring each other up to faith and good works to action, to living out the truths that God has given us in our lives. And the last thing I want to point out, in Luke 17, 6, it says that all you need is faith the size of, uh, the size of a, what? Mustard seed. And I think this is really important to look at because the quantity, the size of your faith doesn't matter. What matters? size and power of who you have faith in. God is real. And it's that reality that makes our faith powerful. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is certain and it is sure there's substance and evidence to the hope that we have. And the only question is, is are you going to live it out in your lives for the honor and glory of our Heavenly Father, for our good and the good of those around us that need to see that salt and that light and the testimony and the faith that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.